Hey, what's up, everybody? Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley is presented by Domino's Hawaii, now promising contactless delivery to assure that your pizza is delivered safely to your door. Domino's Hawaii wants to thank its entire team for their efforts in staying safe, keeping sanitized, and working hard to serve our neighbors during these trying times. And a special thanks to you, the customers, for your continued trust. As a locally owned company, Domino's Hawaii knows there are people seeking work, and it is hiring as many in our community as possible right now. We're all in this together, so take care out there, and let's look forward to the next big sporting event where we can all gather and celebrate as one. All right, let's talk sports. All right, what's up, Jordan? Let's uh, get this thing going. Coming up on this episode of the podcast, uh, we're going to break down our reaction to the match. Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning versus Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady. Uh, plus, Iron Mike Tyson about to go bare knuckle, perhaps. Plus, we got some uh, interview clips uh, from a couple of buddies of ours. Shane Dudois, former Baldwin baseball coach and Rangers scout. We'll talk about uh, the outlook of the upcoming Major League Baseball draft. And then we'll hear from legendary women's volleyball coach Dave Shoji, who's involved in an up-and-coming pro indoor volleyball league on U.S. soil. And so he's going to break down some of the details of that uh, as well. Very interesting stuff as uh, Dave finds himself once again in the midst of the volleyball world. But we start off as we like to with the warm-up. And Todd Graham, head coach for the University of Hawaii football program, says uh, he favors having a mascot at UH Games. This subject was broached when he uh, was talking with presumably Ferd Lewis of the Honolulu Star Advertiser and basically expressed his love for Vili the Warrior, of course, who spent many years during the June Jones head coaching era uh, at UH as the unofficial mascot. Uh, but when Todd Graham came out in 2004 with his Tulsa team, uh, he said he first encountered Vili, loved the energy he brought to the stadium, says he wants a mascot at UH Games. Are you down with the return of a UH mascot? And is Vili the best one that UH has ever had? Yes and yes. Uh, I, I am all in. I, 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 the Vili, and partly because it also, I think, brings back some nostalgia of the glory days, if you will, brighter times in UH football. Um, I, I, I'm all in on a return of some sort of mascot. I think it's kind of fun what Todd Graham has done, right? Uh, sort of embraced a lot of University of Hawaii football history. Heck, when we had him on the podcast, he was talking about hard-hitting, physical, defensive football and how Hawaii people and Hawaii fans love to see their football teams play that brand of defense. It's like, okay, this guy, I, I, I like where he's going with this, right? And I think that perks the ears of a lot of people. And then you talk about hey, we're also going to look at maybe bringing back a mascot and maybe bringing back the mascot in all of college football. Uh, you can talk about the Ralphie running out at, at, in, in Colorado or, or Ugga the Bulldog or something like that. It's like, dude, when you've got a real-life Vili the Warrior pounding on the drums and he's got all his kids out there, I think Braden was the last of the bunch, right? He's, if I've got that correct, the, the Fehoko family who is – unbelievable in terms of their football playing prowess and all the brothers basically playing division one football uh now that Braden and, and who knows maybe you know he latches on with the Chargers and he has a great NFL career uh but I feel like Vili's gonna have more free time on his hands and I follow the dude on Instagram he's still jacked he's still putting up weight in the weight room on like a daily basis uh and if we can't get him maybe one of the bro maybe one of the sons can take over I I am all in on a return of the drums to the end zone at Aloha Stadium and uh, a little bit of the intimidation factor, something like that. Let's let's get a let's get a warrior back. Yeah, there's no denying the impact that Vili had as an image at Aloha Stadium on opposing teams because he did look uh, very intimidating. I think for a lot of teams that entered into that stadium, uh, but just the energy he brings everywhere he goes, uh, whether he's in an official capacity or not. I mean, look at what what transpired with Braden and his career at LSU, and uh, when the team would walk to the stadium in their full suits, uh, he would still engage Braden with his dad in a performance of the haka right there. Vili would be on the other side of the gates and they would perform a haka and it would get everybody razzed up and jacked up for 
for football. Uh, and so wherever he goes, he just brings a certain energy. So I'm not sure the, uh, the realistic nature of bringing Vili specifically back. He's living on the mainland now. Uh, that said, you know, I don't think it ever hurts to have some kind of symbol there to help with the festivities. And we don't know exactly what the college football games in their immediate future are going to look like here. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of remember the evolution of the various stabs that UH has taken in trying to establish a mascot, right? Uh, back in the day, they would have uh, kind of a bulked up guy dressed as kind of a, a Hawaiian warrior, uh, if you will. And then you had the guy that was in the fake muscle bodysuit who also dressed up in, <laughs> in the, the Hawaiian warrior garb. Uh, and then they had that like marshmallow guy, remember, which was like a total disaster. Uh, he was just this big puffy UH football thing with like a helmet on top. And it was atrocious. People were like throwing stuff at it. Like it was about as bad uh, an experience as, as UH could have ever envisioned. And then June Jones, uh, he was able to recruit Vili the Warrior. And Vili kind of represented not just Hawaii and, and sort of the attachment to uh, this place geographically, he, he kind of represented all of Polynesia. Uh, I, I think that was what June Jones specifically was going for. And I, I think uh, there were some who, who didn't necessarily vibe with Vili for that exact reason. Uh, but I think his energy that he brought was undeniable. So if you can find somebody that can do that, if you can just find another Vili, if it's not Vili himself, why not? All right, let's get to our game time. Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning defeat Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady in a dramatic match play event called The Match. It was played in nasty weather at the medalist course in Florida. It was broadcast live on TNT, raised $20 million for COVID relief efforts. Uh, so the question is, what did you think of this thing? There was some doubt as to whether or not they'd even be able to play it because the rain was coming down so hard. But you had Charles Barkley in the booth. You had Justin Thomas as an on-course analyst. Uh, you had the most pimped out golf carts perhaps you've ever seen at a golf event like this. Uh, and you had the guys, at least in the case of Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning, wearing golf shorts. Like Tiger just looked like he was a dude playing at your local Muni. Uh, but what do you think of this thing in its entirety? Was it what you were hoping it would be? Was it less? Was it more? What you got? I think it was more. I think it was more than I was hoping for. Everything about it sort of seemed like your weekend warrior foursome. And granted, look, I get it. It's Tiger. It was Phil. Heck, Peyton hit some shots early on. Uh, that birdie he had on, what was it, four or something like that, the par three. Uh, but everything about it, right, from the shorts to the fact that they played through the rain. Uh, Eli Manning, who, like, just joined Twitter this weekend, had the tweet. It's like, I'd play through it. I don't think the heavy stuff's coming down for a while. He's, like, quoting Carl Spackler. Like, everything about every they play, play through the rain. Uh, Tom Brady is apparently human because he looked like a lot of us, right? Shank here, shank there somehow finds an eagle from 150 out. It's like, that's the weekend warrior. You know what I mean? It's a, it's 95 terrible shots in the three great ones where it's like, I tap in for eagle. Uh, I hole out from the fairway. But at the same time, I lost seven balls. I'm down a couple of sleeves. Like everything about it just reminded me of, of weekend warrior stuff, right? Even Tom Brady with the pants. He's like trying a little too hard. He's like the guy who gets out of his car in the parking lot. It's like, Tom. What are you wearing pants for? You know, it's like, what, what are we, what are we, what is it, Sunday at the Masters? You know, just like everything about it. I loved it. The side commentary from, from Chuck, uh, I think is brilliant planning from a television standpoint, making some side bets, uh, talking a little junk and a little junk talked back at him, right? Uh, where they're talking about, hey, they, they pick Feeding America as one of the sponsors because feeding Chuck would have cost too much. Uh, like every, like, it's like, you know, the guys you run into at the turn and you're talking a little junk as your group passes that group. Uh, some buddies you see every Saturday or something like that. Cause you got the similar tea times. Uh, I, I thought it was great. I, I really did. Uh, it just reminded me of, of the weekend warrior uh, foursome that, that I think so many people can relate to. Yeah. I loved it. I love the fact that I can with confidence profess that I am the Tom Brady of golf of golf. <laughs> Because he was like how we are out there. I mean, he was shanking him left and right. He was getting all frustrated. He ripped his pants for crying out loud. Yeah. Like, as humanizing a thing to see from Tom Brady, who, by the way, I mean, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here when I say he is a fine looking man. Is he not? My goodness. Uh, the guy's in impeccable shape. Uh, but it was it was very comforting to know that I think if we got out there on the course, me and the goat, Tom Brady, I got a chance, man. <laughs> like, I, got I think a, so. 
I think so. That, 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 that kind of, that's why it reminded me of, right? It's like, you got this guy who's probably like the best looking dude in the group, who's maybe the worst golfing guy in the group, but he shows up dressed to the nines, right? Sure. It's like, all right, Tom, Tom, come on, come on, enough, enough. We know how right. this is going to go. And of yeah. course he splits his pants and it's great, right? And everybody else the whole time is going to rag him the rest of the round. That's right. Only Tom Brady can split his pants. And people are still like, well, you know what? He's, he's, it's fine. It's fine. Tom, you do you. You do you. Um, but I loved just the access we got. Again, seeing Tiger Woods in that relaxed state. First off, his swing looks fantastic. He was playing really, really well. Um, but just seeing him in that relaxed state, wearing shorts, you know, interacting with the other golfers, laughing, uh, you know, having Peyton Manning say, hey, Tiger, pull the stick for me. And, like, he walks over there and pulls out the pin. Like, just to see him golfing like a normal guy as opposed to in the tournament setting with a caddy and you know very focused and just very serious about everything I just loved that stripped down version uh, and then because Phil Mickelson's so good at this kind of thing right to, to hear his both outward and inner dialogue uh, when he was basically explaining to Justin Thomas I think it was the second hole and he was chipping from off the green exactly what he was trying to do is trying to hit it off of the fringe because the rain he felt uh, was uh, going to allow the ball to sort of skip off it, but it was going to kill it just enough to have it settle by the pin. And then he executes it, and it's just exactly how he mapped it out. That was so fascinating to me, and I could have just gone with that. Like, I could have just, just to have these guys sound it out, uh, or even Tiger Woods lining up putts for Peyton Manning, who prior to the uh, start of the event said, I think I may have the greatest green reader in the world uh, on my team. And it's true. He was over there like, all right, just uh, one ball uh, inside that spot right there. And sure enough, Peyton Manning knocks it in uh, for birdie on that front nine hole. So it just was, it just was awesome. And uh, I, I don't know if they can recapture that necessarily. It came at a perfect time. Uh, the conditions obviously weren't optimal and yet it kind of added to it in a way. I was really happy that they were still able to play through it. Uh, but just having Charles Barkley there talking trash in Tom Brady's ear, saying he's going to give him 50000 if he can hit the green off the tee on a par three and <laughs> badly and says, I should have offered you 50000 to land it on the planet. And it's like, oh, my God, Chuck. Uh, he, was, he was his vintage self. Uh, but again, can you recapture it? I think that becomes the question. The Tiger Phil part, because of their partnership that was established a couple of years ago, this is sort of round two of the match. It begs now for a rubber match, right? Because Phil won the first one one-on-one, -on -one. Tiger's team won this one. And so the match three seems like it's inevitable. How do you recapture it? Who can you add to the fray in the next version of this that you think for entertainment purposes uh, would be optimal? Yeah, it's tough, right? And, and we it saw some of the rating numbers uh, the day after um, as we record this podcast that, uh, you know, it was like 5.8 million is like the largest viewing audience on cable. Uh, and that those numbers are like comparable to the last dance, what those what those uh, live airings or first airings have been garnering on ESPN every of the past five Sundays. But uh, it, it'll be hard to recapture. I will say I do like the the partner format. I do like the foursome format better than just Phil and Tiger. Not that those two guys aren't enjoyable television, but I think it, it really did add so much more with the added characters and Peyton and, and Tom Brady. Uh, but I, I think, um, I don't know what Michael's shooting these days, but, but Michael's front of mind uh, when it comes to it, Michael Jordan, of course. Uh, we know Steph's a good player. Uh, so, you know, let's get some basketball guys out there. Plus you can get maybe Chuck involved and maybe we can mend some bridges. This is me and my fantasy living it out and hoping we can get the best out of everybody, even though it's probably not going to happen because we know there's the rip between Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. But I'd love to see that as like the, you know, the olive branch and we can get those guys back together because I think that would be so much fun. And we know Michael could play back in the day. Again, I don't know what he's shooting these days, uh, but it's not because of lack of practice. Yeah, how good was Peyton Manning to him? Mean, he's just perfect for this. He has a great personality. He was calling out Tom Brady. Just hearing the trash talk was excellent. Uh, but I'm not here to bring people together. I want bitter rivals. So I go, yeah, MJ, got to be there. But maybe you go like Isaiah Thomas or something like that, right? They hate each other. They would have a lot of spiteful <laughs> things to say to one another. If you're going to have Barkley out there on the course, uh, how about Barkley on one team and Draymond Green on the other team? Let's do that. Let's Ooh. put these guys in separate carts and have them riding along each other and see what transpires from there. I'm all for chaos in that sense. Uh, and then if we want to go to a different sport altogether, because this is golf, it's swinging a club. How about we get some big bangers? And how about we get Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire 
out there on the course, team them up with Tiger and Phil, and just see who can win the longest drive contest with those bombs. Uh, I'm here to see the fire burn. That's what I say. Uh, it makes for, for great reality television, <laughs> I suppose, right? Yeah, well, it's a character flaw on my part, probably more than anything else. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, the Major League Draft is scheduled for June 10th, Jordan, and uh, we are going to be introduced to an abridged five-round version of this thing. We actually have a clip of an interview you did uh, with Shane Dudawa, former Baldwin High School baseball coach uh, and now Texas Rangers scout, whose son, Haloa, interestingly enough, uh, from Baldwin and Concordia, Irvine, is hoping for a shot, maybe an outside chance at getting his name called. Uh, but uh, you had uh, an interesting discussion with him about what this shorter version of the draft, which includes a signing bonus cap of $20,000 for free agent signings, what the impact of that can be. Let's go ahead and play that right now. But it's going to be a tough situation for the kids that are graduating this year, the seniors, with the five rounds of the draft and after that free agency. And the free agency, the maximum that a team's going to be able to pay is $20,000. It kind of hurts the high school kid that would have gone in the 18th, 19th round and still able to sign for $100,000, which is kind of like our local kids that we've got here, maybe not going to college, but unsure of the transition from high school in Hawaii to the pros. is something that's a guarantee or more of a risk. So, and if you're not in the top 150, 200 prospects in the country, um, there's there's a good chance you probably won't get picked up. Uh, how has that changed things where, where you're not able to, to go to games, you're not able to go to showcases uh, to scout these kids as there is no spring season? You know, there, there's a lot of information that's gathered throughout the two, three years um, leading up to their senior year. You know, when it's at their senior year, okay, we know what this kid has got. So for the betterment, for the kids that are the good, really good kids, this this past season really didn't hurt them much. It probably hurt the kid that could have get, been given a chance at the 20th, 30th round, maybe $40,000, $50,000. And now, having the draft the way it is and going into, I mean, these high school kids, that the most that they can get paid if they're signed as a free agent is $20,000. It's probably better off that they go to school, that they go to try and get an education. Hopefully, and I think 2021, the draft might be a little modified as well. So these kids that be graduated, they're hoping for the 2023 draft when these guys are juniors. I mean, I think I think this draft is going to be filled with a lot of college juniors and top-tier uh, high school kids that are willing to sign right away. Being a scout for the Rangers, I always try to look out for our local kids as well and the betterment of them and hopefully answer their questions when they call and I can give them information about how things are going. And, like, I mean... As everybody is, this is a tough situation for them. Um, you know, there, there's a couple big island kids who probably could sign in the 18th, 19th round for a little more than $100,000 in school, but that's not going to happen anymore. It's, it's too much of a risk to go and pay a kid, you know, 500000 in the first five rounds versus, you know, 18th, 19th round and $100,000. Okay, we can maybe afford that. And now for these kids to be forced to sign for $20,000, it's unfair to them. Um, and it's sad to see it happening, but I'm hoping these kids do have other opportunities. I mean, I don't wanna see a local kid with top tier talent be forced to sign a $20,000 contract. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You mentioned some of those Hawaii guys and, and we know you're, your uh, involvement really throughout the 808. So what'd you make of, of this? draft prospect class for for Hawaii, whether it's just the high school guys. I know you're not necessarily going to get into specific names or anything like that, uh, but just generally speaking, uh, what would you make of this crop coming up? In, in general, I think we this year is probably the highest, well, the most talented class that we've had in a very long time of high school seniors. Um, UH, there are a few guys that were interesting at UH, but just in general, there was a lot of kids that had a chance to break into the major leagues with this year's senior class. Whether the top guys that did get drafted in the top 10 rounds or guys that would have gone later, I think the talent in general is something that we've never seen for a very, very long time. 
Yeah, and, uh, one prospect I did want to ask you about by name, of course, is your son, Halo Oduruwa, uh, state champion in his days at Baldwin as well, uh, recently graduating from Concordia, Irvine, uh, playing Division II baseball in the Pac West, uh, received some, some conference-wide honors, conference player of the year type honors uh, throughout his year as a four-year starter there, and a guy who is a draft prospect. Uh, what, what do things look like for him going forward here, especially – with the uncertainty and a guy that uh, we've seen grow up and, and yeah, I think can, well, can play been, at the next he's level. He's been approached by a handful of teams. And even before this whole thing started, you know, he'd be, he would have played out his sports year at Concordia and probably be a senior sign, what they call it, which basically probably would have been 30, 40th round with very little money because there's no leverage for him. Um, now it's a little bit different. Guys are asking, you know, what's his willingness to sign? And he's got his four years of schooling, so his degree is done. Um, so he's willing, you know, if someone gives him a chance, he just wants a chance to go and try and prove himself. And if it doesn't work out this year, then he'll probably go back to Concordia. And because these NCAA approved the rule, these guys can go back and play that extra year. So, I mean, either way, it'll work out fine. Um, it's whatever, you know, it's left up to the teams and what they decide to do. Um, but it, it looks promising. I think what Shane is basically saying is uh, what he is at least introducing is uh, there's going to be potentially a domino effect here because if you are going to put these prospects in a position where college ends up being a more viable option because of the lack of money that is being presented in these signing bonuses for free agent signings, then it's going to have a domino effect because you're going to have that next tier of would-be college players uh, who maybe would be drafted way later in the draft or would go undrafted. Uh, and they would have to fall further back in the line, so to speak, when you're talking about doling out scholarships or making roster space for players at these various collegiate programs. So uh, I think there will be a bit of that domino effect here moving forward. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to put it because there really will be a, a ripple down. Um, you know, when you're talking about five rounds, that compared to what they usually have, I mean, you're talking about 40 rounds. That is a huge reduction in the number of draft picks. And on top of that, you're going to limit what guys can sign for as undrafted free agents. Um, that's a huge thing to consider because, it, right, if you're drafted in the top 10 rounds, that is a big-time deal, especially for the high school kids. Um, it, without saying, obviously, the draft-eligible collegiate players, um, there's some considerable signing bonus money that comes with that. Um, guarantees of education money coming your way. We've seen that a lot of times, right? especially for high school kids, uh, where you get a signing bonus plus college paid for. Um, and so there, there are some big-time decisions to be made uh, for young prospects, especially the high school guys, uh, the college players, right? And there could be a whole lot more available uh, to collegiate teams than we've ever really seen uh, since this format went into effect, uh, where if you go to college, you got the, to sit out the three years. So, yeah, I don't know where the logjam eventually hits the backup, if you will, where that exa exactly uh, manifests itself, whether it's at the Division One college level, whether it's guys opting to go to junior college because you can then become draft eligible a lot quicker than having to go through three years for a four-year institution, whether it's guys seeking to play, uh, you know, overseas, uh, trying to find a, an outlet that way, whether it's in Asia or something like that, uh, whether it's sitting out a year and just training, you know, especially for guys, maybe pitchers in particular, who maybe don't need the live bullets as much uh, as, say, a position player and a guy who's got to keep the swing in tune. So I, I'm really curious to see where this all plays out. Um, and I think the other thing, um, you know, that, that could factor in as well is, hey, if I'm a, a seventh, eighth, tenth round pick or something like that where I get a bigger signing bonus, thus a bigger investment from teams, thus maybe a longer leash, right, a, a bigger landing spot for an athlete where, hey, if the team's invested in me, they're going to give me a little more time, right? As opposed to, hey, just $20,000 and whatever contract you're going to get to go to rookie ball or something like that, your window might be smaller, right? Because for a team, if they're investing fractions of what they normally do for a guy who's projected in that range, maybe they're quicker to move on. You know, I think that's probably got to go through guys, especially if they're dealing with agents and things like that. 
Yeah, and it's always great hearing from Shane anyway. He's one of the great guys, and best of luck certainly to Haloa in uh, whatever opportunity presents itself here moving forward. Let's move forward here with the episode. Brian Windhorst of ESPN reporting that there is a, quote, good chance that the NBA jumps straight to the postseason when play resumes. They are considering hosting all teams and personnel once again at ESPN's Wide World of Sports Complex in Orlando, Florida, basically isolating all of the teams that are participating. Uh, But it also opens up the opportunity for a revamped playoff system with teams from both conferences basically being seeded overall 1 through 16. This was an idea that Commissioner Adam Silver has talked about publicly for a couple of years now. This would have to pass an owner vote. Uh, But what do you think about that idea of a revamped playoff system? If this thing does get going and they decide to go 1 through 16, opening up the door for maybe an NBA Finals series that could feature or something like the Lakers versus Clippers, something along those lines. Uh, would you be in favor of that? I'd be in favor of anything uh, getting back to NBA basketball, to be quite honest. Uh, it, it's pretty interesting because my biggest question will be, do they reseed after every round? Or is it just going to be a straight 1 through 16 hard bracket where everything is locked in? Because as it stands, you look at the bracket and, or you look at the standings 1 through 16, it's like, hey, that's kind of convenient for the Lakers because – they would be on the opposite side of a fixed 16-team bracket with no reseeding after every round on the opposite side of the bracket of the Bucks and the Clippers. And so the path all of a sudden for the Los Angeles Lakers becomes much easier than having to go potentially through the Clippers and the Bucks. And then, of course, you're looking at maybe a conference finals or a NBA semifinals between Milwaukee and the LA Clippers where they've got to duke it out and, and the, you know, maybe the Lakers get the, the Raptors or something like that. Right. And, and no disrespect to Toronto in this iteration, but uh, you know, my money's on LeBron and the Lakers when it comes to it. So I, I'm in favor of anything when we come back. Uh, I'd love to see a bit of a, a, a run up to it. I don't know if it's just pure exhibition games. I don't know if it's an abbreviated postseason or excuse me, regular season to games that count or whatever for seeding purposes. The other thing is there is some discrepancy within the the schedule up to this point where the difference between like most games played and least games played at at this point is like five games or something. It's it's decently considerable. Um, And so, you know, if that's all we can get, I'm all for it. Uh, I'd love to see a little bit of a run up to a postseason. Anything we get, I'm not going to complain too much. If they're going to tinker with this thing to the degree where they eliminate the conference affiliation, in essence, and just go 1 through 16, uh, they can introduce all kinds of other ideas, uh, which would involve maybe shortening the early round series. Maybe each round you increase from one game to three games to five games to seven games for the NBA Finals. And that's something to really kind of get it moving, if you will. Uh, You know, I agree with you. I think another major X factor is not just for the sake of establishing uh, appropriate playoff seeding, but just to kind of let these guys get back into shape a little bit. You're going to need some kind of run-up. You're not going to be able to just say, all right, guys, we're going to convene in Orlando Tuesday and tip it up for the NBA playoffs on Wednesday. Like, you're going to have to have some kind of buildup here for the uh, safety of the players. All ideas can and should be on the table because this is going to be a playoff like no other. And they're going to have to try to get it in. And time may be, frankly, of the essence when you consider the concerns about possibly a second wave of this pandemic striking later in the year. So, uh, But I do think the idea of just going 1 through 16 is, is pretty interesting, not just because of what could end up being an NBA Finals series of two teams in what would be the same conference, but even the early round series where these Eastern Conference teams are going to have to deal with these Western Conference teams en route to trying to get to the promised land. Uh, something to spark further interest. Uh, but as you said, fans are just yearning for any kind of hoops. So uh, if they tip it up, uh, people will be there watching. There's no doubt. All right. uh, Speaking of interest, this is either interesting or a little bit uji. I'm not sure how you're going to react to this, but uh, Mike Tyson has reportedly received a $20 million contract with bare knuckle fighting championships to compete in a match. We are somewhat familiar with bare knuckle fighting uh, since Kendall Grove, Maui fighter, former UFC fighter, since he participated in several fights for the organization. But Mike Tyson, big money to get back or a bare-knuckle fighter. Are you here for Iron Mike, bare-knuckling it? Uh, we, we talked about this the other week uh, on the pod and in the videos that have been going around of, of Mike Tyson training, how 
great he looks, the shape he is in, the speed of his hands. My God, he's a scary human being. Um, and, and we said, I, I would be in, man. If, if there's somehow a way to get him back in the ring fighting, oh, man, I, I, I'd be hard to look away. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that would potentially be in a bare knuckle type of boxing match. Uh, if we're talking traditional, you know, with gloves, uh, I'd be there. But I, I don't think I'm on board for the bare knuckle event. Um, for, for a couple of reasons, just in general, man, just watching some of those bare knuckle fights, it is brutal. Um, and in large part, basically watching Kendall's fights and, and a guy we know. Um, and, and even seeing Kendall out there, man, it is, it is rough. Uh, and so to see Mike's hands fly that fast, bare knuckle and hitting somebody, I'm not on board. And the other thing is, like, who the, the only people that are going to be willing to step in that ring um, with Mike in the bare knuckle side are, are going to be chumps, man. Like, they're, they're going to pay somebody, and it's going to be brutal, and it's not going to be fun. Uh, because you're not going to get a, an established, legitimate star, I don't think, uh, unless they throw all kinds of money at a retired, I don't know, somebody, you know, big-name guy. Um, you know, sort of of the age and status as a Mike Tyson. And if that's the, if that's the case, if those guys are going to agree to go to a fight, somebody with bigger pockets can come out and get us an actual fight in a ring in Madison Square Garden or something like that, as opposed to, you know, Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, one of like three states that actually sanctioned bare knuckle fighting. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in on mine, Mike making a return, but, but not bare knuckle, man. That's where I draw the line, which I get is a bit arbitrary. And I'm like, I'm all in on, mixed martial arts and boxing and and it, there's a bit of a perversion to that i get it but yeah I, I gotta i gotta draw the line man at bare knuckle i'm not i'm not on board with mike getting in the bare knuckle ring yeah i'm kind of with you and even when kendall got in to this organization and, and competed it, it was a bit cringeworthy just because like you said it's a little more brutal uh it is akin to watching old kimbo slice videos on youtube when he was just out in the street brawling Hey, look, we're talking about Mike Tyson, and his career path was a roller coaster, and his personal life has certainly been that as well. And he has done some really tremendous things in terms of achievement in the sports world, but he has also done and been involved with some really, really awful things uh, when it comes to human behavior. That said, for Mike Tyson, a guy who would be maybe in many people's conversations of one of the most dominant fighters uh, in boxing you have ever seen. It, it feels like a step down. It feels like something that can be perceived as beneath his reputation as a boxer, as a world-class heavyweight prize fighter, a former champion. It just feels like it's a, a little bit of a, of a step down, maybe, maybe more than that. All right, time to get to our Domino's Hawaii main topping. And so the main point of discussion here for the show, we're going to let Dave Shoji do a lot of the talking. In fact, uh, he is the former legendary head coach of the Rainbow Wahine volleyball team. 42 years running the show for that program, winner of four national titles. Uh, and so in his retired days, he says that he has been surfing a lot, golfing a lot. Uh, he has been cooking and baking and doing things that uh, wasn't necessarily part of the daily routine uh, when he was in the midst of coaching. Uh, but he is still involved in the game uh, because in a recent talk that I had with him for the stream team for Spectrum Sports, he unveiled that he was involved basically serving as an advisor for the development of a new professional women's indoor volleyball league in the United States, it is an idea that has been attempted a multitude of times, has never quite caught on. Uh, but if you listen to his interview, uh, there is reason that he says people should be optimistic that this new endeavor has some possibilities. Let's go ahead and play that talk with Dave Shoji. There's a professional women's volleyball league on the horizon. And it's actually headed up by a local guy named Peter Hirschman. They've asked me to come aboard. And so it's very intriguing. It's, it's going to be, I think, a revelation in our country because we don't have a women's pro volleyball league. We have sand, but nothing indoors. And there's like 300 girls, women that are playing overseas from the U.S. So there's a big need for this. And it's failed, I think, four times. This will be the fifth pro league that's trying to start up. But I think Peter has a very good model. And so that, that really occupies a lot of my, my thought processes. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and go, hey, we got we to gotta do this, you know. And 
And so I'll call him the next morning. Oh, yeah, I couldn't sleep last night. How about this idea? Um, but he's got a really good model. Like I said, it's, it's almost like Major League Soccer, where the league owns the franchises and there's no uh, individual franchises yet that may come to pass. But it's been very exciting for me because I'm, I'm involved in the volleyball part of it, not the fundraising and not the, the structure and not the you know, the motto itself, um, there's some really bright people that are in the business world that understand how to, how to make things happen. And so that, that occupies a lot of my thought process right, right now. Oh, that's really interesting. How, how far along in the process are we? Uh, I mean, obviously, this pandemic slows everything to a screeching halt. But uh, that said, I mean, when could we see this come to fruition? Well, actually, the pandemic has been good for us because everything else has slowed down, but we, we keep going. So it's allowed us to catch up maybe. But anyway, um, we're trying to have a season in 2022, 2022, yeah, what am I saying? 2022, like an exhibition matches in the franchise cities. And then the actual league will start 2023. So it's a it's a ways off, but there's so much to this. And, you know, it's just trying, we're just trying to get it off the ground. And so the league is actually ticketed to start in January of 2023. You mentioned that this might be a bit of a different setup uh, based on, on the comparisons to the previous attempts to launch uh, a U.S. A professional women's volleyball league in what ways would you describe this venture as being different or unique and, and why do you think it lends itself uh, to possibly uh, having a greater chance of success first of all we're trying to establish a grassroots kind of movement much like major league soccer where you have young junior clubs involved with the professional team in their city and so if you have these junior volleyball clubs are huge now, 20, 25, 30 teams in one club. So if you go, you got a line with something like that and you involve the kids with the pro players and pro players maybe coaching at the junior level, that's, that's one model. That's part of the model that we think will help the pro team. Can you imagine like uh, each each team would have each junior team has 10 kids on it say there's 30 teams in a club that's a lot of people and their parents so that's part of it the other part is just being fiscally responsible uh not paying huge amounts for the players make it attractive to the players the american players especially but not go overboard. There's no one going to make a hundred thousand playing professional volleyball in this league. Um, so I think the salaries will be reasonable, but it will be attractive to some players. We're not going after the USA national team, Olympic type players, because they command a lot of money over in Europe. They're going to make a hundred, 200, some make more than that. So we're targeting the players from, let's say, 25th best player in the country to 100. Those kind of players still go overseas, but they don't make quite as much. And maybe we can offer them 50, 40, 30,000 to stay home and play in a four month season. It might be worth their while. Uh, the coaches will be paid, you know, it wouldn't be paid like college coaches, maybe cut below that. The staffs will be smaller. It'll be in a coach, a head coach, assistant coach, maybe a trainer. We're looking at smaller venues. Um, but we're looking at major cities on the mainland. Honolulu is definitely a possibility, uh, but we understand the travel restrictions and travel costs to having a franchise here. But we've got so far as like we, we, are targeted eight cities, and I'm not at liberty to say what eight they are because negotiations are ongoing. So there'll be four in the Midwest, 
there'll be four on the west. And then you're kind of playing more in your own division. There'll be two divisions. There'll be you'll play more games in your division, uh, but you will cross over to the other division. We're looking at 20 games for a, a season plus the playoffs. Um, I don't know what else. This scoring will be a little different. Uh, we're, we're looking at fun ways to involve the crowd in more excitement as far as the score. Probably going to go to 21 maybe, but freeze the score when you get the game point. You can't just score like on a bad serve. You know, you, you have to serve to to uh, score a point. That, that kind of stuff. Um, There'll be roving like announcers to the game instead of some somebody sitting behind a desk saying side out Hawaii <laughs> now serving so and so. There'll be somebody active moving around the crowd. He's still announcing the game, but um, just making it more fun, throwing T-shirts out, stuff like that. But it's exciting to me because I'm not involved much now. But this this gets me back there and. I've just, I just loved it so far. All right, there you go again. That was Dave Shoji, part of the stream team interviews. You can uh, catch those talks in their entirety on Spec Sports High on all the different social media platforms. That said, Jordan, uh, are you in for a new professional women's indoor volleyball league on United States soil? Dave mentioned uh, Honolulu is at least being tossed around as an idea for one of the host cities. I'm not sure how realistic that is with the cost of travel. That always seems to be a sticking point uh, for any professional venture out here. That said, just the general idea, you're all for it? Yeah, I mean, it's great, right? Anytime we can expand um, and give opportunities, particularly to female athletics, uh, in this country, I, I think it's great. And, and we know the popularity of collegiate volleyball, not just here in Hawaii, but, but across the nation and, and the amount of money and resources that have been committed to it by a lot of the Power Five schools. Um, I think in a lot of places, it, it rivals uh, women's collegiate basketball. It is without a doubt uh, amongst the top two sports when it comes to the female athletic side uh, collegiately. And so how do you capture that, right? How do you capture that uh, and extrapolate that to a professional league. Because as you mentioned, it's been tried, it's been done. And, and I get it. It comes down to the bottom line and, and it comes down to the ability to fund this and the ability for it to, to make money. Uh, we have seen it be successful uh, different places across the world, uh, Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, for whatever reason, right, uh, has done well. And some of the Asian countries as well have been able to make a viable women's volleyball professional league work. Uh, I think the difference in this iteration is a different, you know, financial backing uh, as opposed to some of the earlier attempts at a United States Women's Professional League. And then I think the other aspect as well, I mean, you've got instances of, of attempts going back to the 80s. Uh, no disrespect to the players that came along then. Uh, but what you're talking about now in terms of athleticism, in terms of power, in terms of just sheer athletes, um, in the women's game in this day and age, and on the men's side too, but what we're talking about here with the women's side, the, the, the caliber of athlete, the size, the power, the height, everything about it um, is pretty darn impressive. Uh, and we've seen that as the, the collegiate game has evolved and how much taller and how much more above the net the collegiate game has become. Uh, and I think from an entertainment value, that, that'll help uh, as opposed to you know some of the earlier attempts at this in the 80s or something like that and the ability to distribute this content uh, and, and televise it and the, the streaming aspect. And there's so many more things, I think, that um, are positives in this attempt going forward. So, yeah, I, I hope it makes – I hope it makes it, right? We, we know here in Hawaii people love volleyball. People love women's volleyball, wahine volleyball. Um, and an opportunity, you know, for a lot of these athletes potentially to, to go ahead and, and make a living and make a career of it here – in the States as opposed to, you know, traveling halfway across the world to go chase their dream. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, our post game best and worst. Hey, for our listeners on Maui, we are holding out hope that the 18th season of the Maui flag football league will take place as scheduled this summer. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from three to 18 
broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, Jordan, time for our post-game. Let's get into our best and worst. What is your worst here for this episode of the pod? Yeah, uh, my worst. Uh, news just coming down that uh, my guy, uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, uh, has reportedly suffered a, an Achilles injury that might end his career. Dude's already 38, uh, for those not familiar with Zlatan. Uh, one of the best soccer players of his generation still going. Um, just Google him, look up some highlights. The guy is incredible, uh, and his personality matches his talent. The dude is bombastic. Uh, he is professional wrestler-esque when it comes to his personality and his self-promotion uh, and his unabashed cockiness. Uh, he's great, uh, but uh, he's now he was playing with uh, LA Galaxy for the last couple of years after a long career in Europe. He's playing with AC Milan again um, and injured his Achilles, and I was pretty bummed out by that because he, he's just an enjoyable guy to watch, whether you love him or hate him. Uh, and then it kind of got me thinking because it's something that we talked about earlier in the pod with Brian Windhorse reporting that you know they, the NBA might just jump right back in to a 16-team playoff, and and that is my fear, man. Is some of these athletes. Uh, you know, where, where they've been idle for a couple of months and then jumping back in and then all of a sudden you pop an Achilles or a hammy or you get hurt or something like that. And so I, I just hope, and, and it sounds like teams are, are taking the precautions. I'm not saying that they're being irresponsible with it, but, uh, you know, you kind of cross your fingers and hope that the leagues give these guys enough time to play their way back into shape, especially when you're talking about basketball, right? It, there's no way to get ready for an NBA 48-minute game besides playing it. So, uh, yeah, when Zlatan went down, I was like, oh, man, you know, I hope this doesn't happen to more guys. Uh, all right, my worst is uh, the two-part ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on Lance Armstrong called Lance. I'm not saying the documentary is bad. It's actually a really solid documentary, at least based on the first episode that aired this past weekend. But we have yet to hear Lance Armstrong take any real legitimate accountability for what he did and his involvement with doping, which we find out, if you hadn't followed with the articles and, and other things that have been written about him in recent interviews, uh, we find out that he became involved with doping at the age of 21. So really on the front end of his rise to fame. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of regret about it. Even the way in the first like 30 seconds of the episode, he refers to, uh, you know, that thing that happened in my life. Uh, he doesn't refer to it as, oh, and when I decided to make that choice to, to start cheating or doping or whatever it is, uh, it doesn't sound like it's something that he takes full responsibility for doing. It almost sounds like it's something that he still feels happened to him. And so my worst is just kind of the Lance Armstrong story. Uh, at least based on this first episode, he didn't seem like a very cool guy. Didn't seem like a guy that was easy to get along with, an incredible will to win, so much so that it seems as though he paid no mind to the weighing of the moral and ethical questions about doping versus his desire for glory and success. And I get it. He was in an atmosphere in international racing uh, that was absolutely swept up into performance-enhancing drugs. And you had the huge scandal in 1998 with the Tour de France. And, and I understand that it was almost assumed that if you wanted to actually compete and realistically compete to win, you had to engage in that but I have yet to hear any equation on how he came to that decision. Everything just sounds so automatic and very unapologetic, uh, but I was hoping to get a little bit more contrition from Lance Armstrong and maybe a little bit more access into how he came to make that decision. Yeah, plus he um, disgraced the good name of, the, of USPAS, the United States Postal Service, for all those years. So that's unforgivable in my that's book. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, and, and on top of that, really, seriously, I mean, as a cancer survivor, he inspired so many. Uh, my mm -hmm. dad was a guy who wore the Live Strong bracelet and band when he was recovering from leukemia. Uh, Lance Armstrong was an absolute inspiration to him. To then, at this stage, looking back on it, kind of be so unapologetic about it, it just, I don't know, it rubs me the wrong way. And I'm just hoping that Lance 
takes the advantage of having uh, this exposure once again uh, to try to rebuild his reputation. It's clear that maybe he's trying to reestablish his profile just a little bit, that maybe he takes full advantage and actually uh, expresses some contrition. I think that would go a long way. All right, what about your best, Jordan? Yeah, my best, um, I, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, a couple of groups. One, uh, all the, the high school graduates uh, around the state, a, a big bulk of, of the high school graduations in whatever form they took on uh, during the, the COVID situation. All these alternative graduations took place this past weekend. And then uh, uh, also a shout out to the, the 12 new inductees of the HHSAA Hall of Honor. Uh, every year, the Hawaii High School Athletic Association inducts 12 seniors um, that are outstanding athletes, as well as uh, uh, high character individuals that displayed high character in some community service and 12 new inductees uh, into this year's class. I've had the privilege the last three years of serving on the selection committee. Uh, we had an all day meeting yesterday to whittle the field down uh, to the 12. You can go check that out uh, on sportsside.com. That's the HHSA website uh, for the breakdown of all 12 individuals and, and, and their uh, resume. So uh, kudos to those kids, uh, all five leagues represent presented all uh, four counties, if you will, uh, six boys, six girls. It was a, a fun class. All right. My best is something that is way more trivial, and that is Bleacher Report's Game of Zones. Have you watched this thing, this series, over seven seasons, basically? It's a spoof on Game of Thrones, but with basketball players. Uh, it is basically a Game of Thrones involving the NBA. Uh, and so the last season and the season and series finale that just was made available on YouTube and Bleacher Report uh, was basically about the showdown with the White Walkers, who are actually the 92 Dream Team. Uh, they are sort of reborn in their primes, and they are trying to take over the kingdom, basically, to prove that they were the best and that basketball was at its peak at that time. And you have all uh, the, the younger generation, LeBron, leading the way to try to battle against them for supremacy. And then the show takes a bit of a twist, kind of like the series finale for Game of Thrones. Uh, and it's just really funny, well done. The animation is cool. Uh, the voiceover work is tremendous because you have all of these voices that kind of sound like the players, but with these old English accents. Uh, Game of Zones, man, they knocked it out of the park. Uh, I would definitely recommend taking it in. It's all available on YouTube. Uh, Game of Zones, yeah. Oh, yeah, and then, yeah, the, uh, the high school graduates and, and all of them. <laughs> I, I haven't watched any of this season yet, so I, I, I've got some binging and catching up to do. I figured I'd kind of wait till the end. Uh, everything that that group has done, I'm bummed that it's the last season. And I know they announced that from the beginning, but uh, I wish they'd just keep going because it's not like NBA drama is going to stop anytime soon. Uh, but it is really witty. It is brilliant writing. Uh, and it is such an imaginative and fun show. And um, yeah, I'm, 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 sad it's, I'm sad it's over now. Yeah, it's a completely different feeling from the end of Game of Thrones where I was like, what the hell was that? And Game of Thrones is like, <laughs> I get it. These guys... Thumbs up, baby. All right, that's it for us. Big thanks again uh, to Shane Dudawa and Dave Shoji. You can hit us up on Twitter with any questions or comments or suggestions at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at Talk Sports 808. Until next time, Jordan, have a good one. See you, man. Don't forget, Domino's for dinner. Oh, yeah. Every time.